0: This episode of AstronomyCast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information.
1: AstronomyCast, episode 198 from Monday, September 13th, 2010. How is a space mission chosen? Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. where We help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Cain. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser?
1: Great. It was uh, it was great to hang out with you at uh, DragonCon 2010 and do the live episode of the show. So I hope all of everyone's had a chance to listen to that. What a party!
0: It was definitely an amazing, I guess, four days all put together. And uh, hopefully, next year we'll get to see everyone who didn't have a chance to go out and see us this year. Already looking forward to Dragon Con 2011, and go get your hotel rooms. They're already
1: starting to sell. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's unbelievable how fast these hotel rooms book out. Like you, they've already started. They, in fact, they were starting to take reservations. Uh, Like the last day of the con (laughs) for the next year. So, yeah, you can start anytime and I think you can cancel. So it's, you know, there's nothing, no problem to reserving now. So this week, space missions are expensive to build and launch. So there's a lot of planning that goes into choosing exactly what's going to be shot into space. Space scientists and engineers recently went through the process of deciding on their science goals. So we thought we'd spend an episode explaining how this works and how the next generation of spacecraft and telescopes will be selected. So, Pamela, this is kind of close to your heart. You were a member of the Decadal Survey. What is that?
0: It's a project that every basically 10 years, the entire astronomy community and separately the entire planetary science community sits down and figures out, well, what are our big science questions? What are our big technological needs? How can we take our entire field and come up with a few goals that, as a field, will allow us to fundamentally change how we understand the universe if we can just accomplish these goals? And in astronomy, we sat down, and we didn't just look at the science and the telescopes and galaxies and that sort of stuff, but we also asked the question of, how can we better communicate astronomy to the public? And this is where I got the chance to sit on one of the committees. One of the committees was dedicated to looking at astronomy education and public outreach, the type of stuff that we do here with Astronomy Cast and with the Zooniverse, with Galaxy Zoo and Moon Zoo, and... With so many different online projects, uh, even Twitter was included in ways that we are currently reaching out to the public
1: right okay so so then can you sort of walk me through that I mean I know that that a scientist you know as science moves forward, the scientists get bigger and deeper questions that they they want to answer so so what is that process
0: well It's twofold. It's, on one hand, what technology do we need as a whole for the entire community? Things like the great observatories that NASA built, the Hubble, Chandra, Spitzer, all of these great orbiting observatories, Compton, they were built out of the recognition that, well, to advance our entire field, we need versatile instruments that are on one hand geared towards specific questions. Hubble was geared at figuring out, well, what is the Hubble constant? What is the expansion rate of our universe? But on the other hand, are flexible enough that when things we never dreamed of are discovered, these instruments can be used to try and answer those questions. So on one hand, we're trying to define what are the technologies that cost huge sums of money that will most effectively move our field forward, and guiding it on the other side is the question of, well, what are the things that we most don't understand that by figuring out these few things, dark energy, dark matter, gravitational waves, by understanding these questions, we can unravel major parts of the tangled web that is science and start to get a clearer understanding of our universe.
1: In mean, many situations, right, it's just there's one kind of observation that could help answer a question and there's just no way to get at the information. There's no way to get the answer. You, You know, tests of Einstein's relativity where... You know, until you could actually put a spacecraft into orbit and orbit it around at a certain speed, you really couldn't complete one of those final things. I guess that was like with the Gravity Probe B or gamma ray bursts where a gamma ray burst would go off and it might last for a couple of seconds. But there was no equipment that was able to slew around quickly enough to spot the afterglow. So it took a mission.
0: And that was where SWIFT came into play. And then we have WMAP, which is one of the very first single-purpose missions. WMAP, when it was built, was simply the microwave anisotropy probe. And then Wilkinson had his name added to it after launch and unfortunately after his death. But WMAP was built with the single purpose of better mapping the cosmic microwave background radiation than it had ever been mapped before. And Planck is following in its footsteps doing an even more high-resolution survey of our microwave sky.
1: So with this process, you run the decadal survey. So what was the, the process that, that happened to kind of bring all these people together, all these ideas together, and actually sort of boil it down into some specific technologies?
0: Well, it's basically a three-phase process. The The first thing they do is a- appoint basically the leaders of the process. And so this is where you have your steering committee. And they, in turn, figure out what are all the subcommittees we need. Appoint chairs of the subcommittees, chairs of the subcommittees, appoint members of the committees. And then all the reporting begins. So on the committee I was sitting on, and from what I understand it worked the same on all the rest of the committees, is each of us were given a very narrow goal. And we were told, survey this slice of astronomy. So I surveyed new media technologies and come back and tell us what is the current state of the field, what are the current needs of the field, in very brief reports. Then all of the reports we wrote were synthesized by the committee chairs into a committee report that was then synthesized in its own way into the full report that came from the decadal survey. And we also took input from the entire field, where we asked the astronomy community, both professional and citizen scientists and amateur astronomers, what do you see as the greatest needs of the the field? Write us white papers. So here we were getting white papers about the needs of postdoctoral researchers, the needs for how to change graduate school to better serve today's graduate students who have different things they need to learn than graduate students 20 years ago when teaching wasn't quite as strong an emphasis. So all this different input comes together.
1: So for an example, like you might talk to all of the black hole researchers and just say, what are the big questions in your field that you need a tool to help you dig a little deeper? Right. And they'll come back and come give you your, their answers.
0: Yeah. And and this is where entire committees were put together and review papers were written. And a whole lot of trees died in the process <laughs> of putting this, this this document together. But if it serves the way the last one served it will be what defines what big missions are funded and what big telescopes are built here on the surface of the planet as well.
1: Okay, so all the scientists provide their recommendations, their wish lists, their dreams, their hopes and dreams. And then, as you said, it sounds like there's a whole lot of committees and subcommittees and meetings and bureaucracy, but the purpose here is to like just boil all this down into some core ideas.
0: Yes. So with with the last decadal survey, uh, especially on the planetary side, and we're still waiting for the planetary report for the, the current decade, they came out with a list of missions and many of those missions got built. And so we're hoping the exact same thing will happen with the current survey. So with this year's results, it came back with on the space side of astrophysics. So no planets were involved, but strictly astrophysics. Uh, the recommendation was for a wide field infrared survey telescope. The, the way they describe this is an observatory designed to settle essential questions in both extra, extra solar planets and dark energy research, which will advance topics ranging from galaxy evolution to the study of objects within our own galaxy. So this is, again, a flexible instrument capable of answering a wide variety of questions, and it's something we don't currently have. Uh, Spitzer is Onto to the warm side of its program. And it's not a wide field survey telescope. So we're looking for something that's a bit different, a lot more sensitive, and will fill a niche that's not currently being filled.
1: How do they decide between whether you want to solve a specific, very specific problem like WMAP or something more general, like producing something like Hubble? And, you know, oh, well, I'll give you another question in a second. <laughs> so how do they decide? How do they pick that?
0: Well, this is where they come up with a mix of things, actually. So missions like WMAP aren't actually all that expensive. It's a single-purpose satellite. It's in Earth's orbit. And by having the low-cost missions, you can answer a lot of very specific questions and not spend that much money in the grand scheme of things compared to a wide field infrared survey telescope, which will cost a ton of money. So here you have one high cost, but very flexible instrument that can answer a whole lot of questions, but then a small fleet of In some cases, what we call Explorer programs, missions that range from tens of millions to, in some cases, there's a a variety of different NASA programs I know we're going to get to. But there's these different lower-cost missions that typically answer a single science program. So they balance it out by looking at cost.
1: Looking at cost and then try to compare that to the the boon to science.
0: Right. So very expensive, flexible instrument versus lower cost, single question instrument. And you come up with uh, a menu, something where you can go a la carte and solve a lot of problems all at once.
1: Right. Or just provide a really powerful tool that has no specific thing like Hubble or James Webb. And I know they have a few science goals they're going to try and figure out, but I mean, Hubble can just be used for so much.
0: Right. Right. And and what's neat is the way we often have to justify things is, well, Hubble is going to determine the origins of planetary nebula, which it's really quite shocking to think that we didn't fully understand the structure of planetary nebula. We still don't understand the origins of the structure of planetary nebula, but we didn't understand the diversity of structure of planetary nebula until Hubble was launched. So planetary nebula was one of its original causes. And then measuring the Hubble constant, of course, was one of its original causes. And we use it to look at everything. And that's pretty amazing and w first the wide field infrared survey telescope they're looking at is looking to be one of these next generation workhorses of astronomy
1: right so the scientists have gotten together and they've they've decided on the, the big science challenges that they're they're interested in solving and this is boiled down i guess into a bunch of mission plans so initiatives so, and mission initiatives so what is what is the what spaceships are we going to see in the, over the next 10 years
0: Well, so what they're looking at on, again, only the astronomy side, they're looking at four different space-based initiatives and four different ground-based initiatives. And on the space-based, we have three single-mission giants, spend a lot of money, get a really cool toy. There's WFIRST, which I just explained. They took LISA. This is a project that people have been talking about since the early 90s, a laser interferometry space antenna it looks like it might finally get the kick in the funding pants that it needs to get itself built and into orbit. This is a series of satellites that will orbit together, separated by a set distance with laser beams spanning that distance that will look for gravitational waves emitted by merging black holes, by collapsing down neutron stars, by a whole variety of different high gravity events and we think there's gravity waves we have all the um secondary evidence you could possibly want but we don't have any direct detections and lisa might finally do that for us if the mission gets put into orbit
1: right this is going to answer the question are there gravity waves
0: finally we we just want a detection and it, it fills the, the niche that LIGO's been trying to fill from the ground, and we've talked about this in episodes before, but trying to detect gravity waves while on a planet is just hard because the UPS truck can screw you up. So what else? The third space-based mission that we're looking at is the International X-ray Observatory. They describe this one as a high spectral resolution X-ray telescope that will lead to great advances in broad fronts ranging from understanding of black holes to cosmology and the life cycles of matter and energy in the cosmos. So this is the replacement telescope for Chandra in some ways, the next big instrument that launches and helps us dig deeper into the X-ray sky. Every time we build a new instrument, we get a little higher resolution, we get a little more sensitive. So we we see these jumps. We we saw them come with Spitzer compared to the IRAS that came before it. So this, this will be our next way to explore the high-energy universe.
1: And it, so it, it's just going to be a much more powerful Chandra?
0: Pretty much. That's what we're looking at right now. It will have more spectral capabilities. So they're saying high-resolution spectroscopy coming out of it. So we'll be able to say better what are the atomic transitions getting observed, what are the specifics of the high-energy universe that we can't quite get to. So it just brings the whole universe into a little bit better focus.
1: I know these are the main missions, right?
0: Right. And then there's also a fourth program to take NASA's Explorer program and better keep it going into the future. So the Explorer missions, these are compact uh, missions-wise, IBEX, small, short-term where they put calls out to the scientific community. What would you like to do next? And they're not all that expensive of a mission, typically. They they come in a variety of different sizes, ranging from missions of opportunity, where you get an instrument on something that's already about to launch, or you extend something that's already in orbit, for upwards of a few tens of millions of dollars, out to much more significant projects that can range as much as $180 million. So all these different projects, they they span from single instruments out to... To missions like swift and fuse and it's a great way to get a lot of science done for not a lot of money so that's where the fourth field of emphasis goes is keeping this program which has produced so many great missions keeping it alive into the future
1: right but it's not just going to be space missions there's also going to be some scientific questions that can be answered from the ground
0: Right. So, so the planet's surface still has a role to play. We don't have to put everything in space. And, this is where instruments like the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, a giant telescope people have been talking about as the load coming, it finally got the blessing of the entire field that it needed to start getting the funding that it needed. This is a multimeter telescope that is going to be able to observe the entire visible sky every three nights. It's going to produce terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data. And its goal is primarily, well, it's it's getting justified as something that will find the next asteroid that might wipe out the planet Earth in time so that we can deter it. But along the way, while it's looking for these killer asteroids and mapping out everything in the inner solar system, it's also going to be mapping the entire universe. It's going to be helping us find new classes of variable stars, new classes of flickering objects of every type from active galaxies to, well, comets that have jets turning on and off. It's going to pick up on all of these different events all across the sky and the follow-up targets, we're going to be using probably every telescope on the planet to just follow up on the new discoveries. They're saying there might be order of tens of thousands of things found each night flickering on and off in the images coming from this telescope.
1: It's funny. You know, we have talked about this. It's interesting that there just isn't a really comprehensive survey to just see how the sky changes from night to night. So so this is actually really important.
0: And. It's, it's following on. We've had Linus Project, which discovered so many different asteroids and satellites. We've had uh, things like the Palomar Sky Survey that in its time surveyed the entire sky slowly but surely. But the rapidity that's allowed by having robotic telescopes, this is something we've never seen before. It's, it's going to be fantastic to see what comes from this specially directed telescope.
1: So we're going to have faster telescopes, but I'm sure we're going to have bigger, right?
0: Right. And this is where we start looking at things like the giant segmented mirror telescope. And there's lots of different people have come up with lots of different giant sizes. Pick your giant tens of meter size of choice. Exactly which one we end up going with is still going to be decided, I
1: think. 30 meters.
0: Yeah. Something obnoxious is coming. Yeah. So uh, here, it's two different ways of looking at the sky. With the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, LSST, we're going to be looking at the entire sky over and over and over with an 8-meter mirror. Giant survey telescope. But it's not going to be sitting down and looking at one galaxy for four days to be able to better understand what was going on in the first few hundred thousand first few million years of the universe. The giant segmented mirror telescope, here we're looking at tens of meters, and it will have specific calls out, okay, tonight, everyone tell us what you'd like to look at tonight. It's more sophisticated than that with telescope allocation committees. But we're still going to be going out to the community and looking for calls for specific science questions. So on one night, they might be looking at the light echo of a quasar. On the other night, they might be looking at The very first galaxies forming at the beginning of the universe and answering specific questions, resolving planets, perhaps, around other stars and observing their light from the surface of the planet. It depends on what type of optics they have. So two different ways of doing science outlined with these two different giant telescope missions.
1: Now, now the decisions have been made, the the proposals have been made, but it's a long way to go from idea for a space mission to the actual thing launched. So, so let's talk a bit about the development process.
0: So we have two different sides here, ground-based and space-based. And this is where, governmentally, we divide things. And sorry, we're being U.S.-centric. Apologies, apologies, apologies. Strategies vary in other nations. Here in the U.S., what we have is the National Science Foundation on one side is funding things that are ground based, and NASA on the other side is funding things that are space based. So, with NASA programs like the Explorer missions, they'll actually put out calls to the community and say, okay, we want individual PIs, individual investigators to put together a team, put together A set of mission goals and put together a budget, and then submit in a lot of crazy documentation that makes you pull your hair out all of the things you want to do and how all of the things you want to do align with the long term goals of NASA, which get aligned in turn with the Decadal Survey in a lot of ways. And then committees are put together, and everyone in the astronomy community at one point or another sits on a committee of a varying level. And you decide the fate of the community when you sit on these panels. You read through the documents. You try and figure out, can these people actually do what they say they're going to do? Are their science questions as important as they say they are? And then you pick what missions are going to get funded. It's often, with satellite missions, a two-tier system where first there's the general call for proposals, it gets narrowed down to a smaller set, the narrowed down set then has to go through a new round of documentation of what they're planning to do, and then the final decisions get made. Now, with the giant missions where we say, dear community, we're going to build the Hubble Space Telescope. In that case, NASA says we have a defined program, and they put things out for bids. So it's a different way of doing things.
1: And it's put out to aerospace companies for bids? or
0: It it varies because you have instruments getting built. So instruments come not just from corporations but also from universities. So, for instance, Cornell has built a whole variety of different instruments for different things all over well, all over the surface of the planet and on their way to other planets. You also have companies like Boeing and Ball Aerospace and Lockheed. They're all involved in building a variety of satellites and missions as well.
1: Right. And then the proposal is chosen and the spacecraft is built. About how long does it take for a spacecraft to be built?
0: They aim with the smaller missions to actually do full turnaround in no more than 36 months. So that's pretty impressive to think about. Now, the bigger missions, the Chandras, the Hubbles, those can, from conception of idea to launch, take decades. But the smaller missions, you're looking at the course of one graduate student's lifetime. You can actually get from conceiving the idea to getting data on hand, and that's pretty awesome to think about.
1: And then they put the mission into their launch schedule, and uh, then
0: you schedule a rocket and hope and pray the rocket works
1: and it doesn't explode, and they have to go back to from scratch and build it all over again, which has happened a few it times.
0: does part of my dissertation was eaten by an x-ray satellite, but these things happen, and mm-hmm. you learn to move on and My lesson to all graduate students out there, having learned this the hard way, is do not write a dissertation proposal that relies on satellites that aren't launched and telescopes that aren't commissioned. <laughs>
1: and then when once the spacecraft is launched then they you know they spend a few months testing everything out making sure it's all working and then finally they open it back up to the to the scientists and start to schedule their time to start making the observations that you know they had planned out 10 years before. <laughs>
0: right. Or, or if they're lucky and it's a smaller mission, two years before.
1: Yeah. Or if they're unlucky and it's, a, a you know, Hubble, 20 years before.
0: Right. And one of the things, that, as a side note, one of the reasons it takes so long to go from launch to first light is they actually, for some of the missions, have to wait for them to outgas. So you get to orbit and you have to wait for everything to stabilize after exposing your spacecraft to vacuum. But once the mission is launched and once you start taking data, then the scientists get first crack at everything. Uh, Typically, they get anywhere from a few months to six months to sometimes you can beg, borrow and steal extra time beyond that to get first chance to publish the results of the mission. No one's hiding data, and this is something that you may have heard uh, debate about with Herschel, is Herschel's actually holding on to some of its best data for the team scientists. But this is simply a matter of these people have gone sleepless nights getting their missions put together, pulling all-nighters now and then just trying to get that last bit of something done. And part of the payback of the blood, sweat, and tears, and there's always tears. There's not always blood, but there's always tears involved in building a mission. Part of the payback is you get first crack at the data and everyone else is told hands off. You can't see until that waiting period is over.
1: Right. Cool. So when might the first spacecraft get launched from the decisions that the committee made just just this year?
0: Well, it's hard to say specifically because when you have things like augmentation to the Explorer program, these are recommendations made by the Decadal Survey. And now we have to wait and see if Congress agrees. We have to wait and see when does the funding make itself out of the National Science Foundation. One of the things that people don't realize is how long it just takes to push things through the U.S. government. When I get grants, I'll I went through this last year. I got a a phone call from my NASA program officer And he made my day one day in October, and the check finally came through mid-January processed to my university. So it takes a lot of time to get everything processed through, but they're also running background checks on you, on your university, on everything else to make sure you're not going to run with the money. So a lot of checks and balances are put into place, and all of those checks and balances slow things down, which is basically my way of saying that due to Congress and bureaucracy, it could be three months, it could be six months, it could be a year before we see the first drop of funding, the results directly from a recommendation from the survey.
1: Right. And then depending on the complexity of the mission, three years to 10 years after that for the actual right. mission to be launched. Right. Right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot for that, Pamela.
0: It's been my pleasure, Fraser.
2: All right. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Okay. Bye-bye.
2: This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Cain and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for US taxpayers. You can support the show for free too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcasting software at astronomycast.com/podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.